G'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Drones for Good podcast. My name's Andrew Crow, uh, as you know by now, host of the podcast um, from Murrigan Unmanned Systems. Um, hard to believe, ladies and gents, we're in season three um, of this podcast. Season one was our kickoff, talking to a bunch of legends in the robotics, autonomous systems, artificial intelligence, and all things unmanned area. Season two, we had a, a chat with a bunch of people around the world of drones and robotics congress that was held up here in sunny Brisbane last November. And season three, we're back talking to experts uh, in the industry, finding out what they know, what's coming for the future, um, and how we can use systems better in our in our lives. Um, I probably don't have a, a better start to the year um, than I have this year, and, and luckily Rio Tinto has come to the party, and today I've got Gavin Gillett here. Gavin, how are you? G'day, Andrew. Great to be here. Uh, excited to have a chat. Yeah, we're really pumped as well. You know, it's not every day that, that we can get companies like like Rio to have a talk about um, everything that goes on. So I'm sure our listeners are really going to appreciate it. I can talk about this stuff underwater. So uh, I'm ready to get fired away. And I'm also an open book. So I'm going to tell you anything you and your viewers want to know, uh, both now and afterwards. If anyone has any follow-up questions, feel free to send it through to me. This could be really dangerous because um, I'll talk to anybody if they'll talk back and, and it seems you're a similar way. So this could go on for hours, but let's um, let's try and limit it to 30 or 40 minutes. Okay. And then we can do a second episode. That's what we can do. Yeah, perfect. Um, um, I love this sort of industry and, and the potential of drones. And so uh, I could talk about this stuff all day and I'm, I'm really lucky uh, to have sort of carved out a bit of a career in Rio Tinto for myself. Uh, advocating, building, and, and training people in the drone industry. So uh, excited to chat. Awesome. Hey, well, let's start about you then. Let, let's all start about all things, um, Gavin. So why don't you give us a bit of background, you know, wh where you came from, how the hell you ended up um, in this role, and what you do at Rio. Sure. So uh, I'll, I'm going to start right at the beginning and yep. uh, and sort of tell you that uh, I'm, I'm born and bred in the Pilbara. So small towns, uh, red dirt in my blood uh, type guy, and, and third generation uh, Rio Tinto, uh, but I was wow. a crane operator uh, originally, so driving heavy vehicles, trucks, and, and large cranes up to 500 ton, um, and I'd been bugging my company for a very long time to start looking at drones and using drones because I thought there, there was a lot of opportunity there to save money, impact safety, and, and do some really cool work with photogrammetry and, and other things, and so uh, eventually they, they gave in and, and let me, and I'd had drones for a long time uh, in my personal life. Uh, I'm a photographer, uh, I do videography, and I make my own sort of travel documentaries and, and, and on YouTube and things like that. And, uh, and finally, they gave me a little bit of rope and, and said, all right, build, build me a, a site-based drone program. And from that, um, I took it and accidentally built a, a, a global one with, with some great friends and partners within Rio Tinto. Um, so I think we're now the, the largest uh, users of drones, according to CASA, uh, in Australia. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, it, it's a really interesting start that, you know, you came from a crane operator um, into this more of an autonomous sort of system. Are, are the cranes going autonomous as well within, within Rio or, or are we still seeing drivers in there? Still seeing drivers in there. Mostly that's because of the human component. Much like aviation and real-world planes have been able to land, uh, take off and fly between locations since the 70s, um, people, the, the everyday person sitting on a plane, isn't comfortable not having someone up the front. Uh, mm. and, and very much the same when it comes to cranes. So absolutely, they can be autonomous. Uh, they're getting more autonomous all the time. Uh, but I don't think they'll be ripping off the cab anytime soon. 
So where do you sit on on that side of the fence? So are you are you one of these people that are comfortable, you know, moving into a world where we have passenger airlines that that don't have a pilot in the front, or what's your personal thoughts on that? Yeah, very much so. Uh, incredibly comfortable, probably too comfortable, but you need those starters <laughs> uh, to to sort of start um, the the ball rolling. Um, mostly uh, because of uh, my time and history in the mining industry. I've been watching Rio Tinto my whole life slowly automate different aspects of the business. And when I look at my own sort of uh, um, observations, I guess you could say, is we only had four mine sites and a port uh, when I was a kid uh, for all of Rio Tinto in the Pilbara, and now we're up to 17 and, and the same goes for BHP. They only had three mine sites and a port in the same period of time. And now in that same area, we have 50 or 60 mines. But the really interesting part about that is we only have the same amount of people living in the Pilbara. The, mm. the population of the Pilbara um, hasn't fundamentally changed all that much. And sure, we have fly in, fly out, but the majority of the workforce, uh, I'm pretty sure if I understand correctly, is still residential living in the towns and, and, and cities of the Pilbara. And so all of that uh, extra mining activity is because we've automated. So automation uh, has allowed us to do more work and, and do more meaningful work um, uh, rather than sort of getting rid of jobs, which tends to be the thing that most people uh, equate with automation. I've, uh, I've visited the Pilbara. My, uh, I'm ex-army by background and my brother-in-law um, was the adjutant of the Pilbara Regiment um, over ah, in WA. Yeah, so we, we got up there and, and had a bit of a look um, a bunch of years back now. That was, that was kind of 2009, 2010, but um, oh, I love it out there. It's, it's, it's a really interesting place to visit and, and have a look at. See, if you loved it out there, you must have went in winter. Um, <laughs> yeah. Pretty confident of that because the, the summers can be oppressive. Uh, and, and I've literally had the glue of my boots melt. Um, so my, my boots have just fallen apart and melted underneath me with the, with the temperatures that we get out that way sometimes. So anytime someone's like, I've been to the Pilbara and I loved it, I'm like, I've been winter. Hey, you, you touched on something um, really important just before that I want to I dive into a little bit, and that's about um, moving towards automation and automating jobs. And there's a, I, I think there's a common misconception that when we talk about automation, we immediately talk about sacking people because, you know, we don't need people now because we, we're automating things. And, and I try to explain to people from the, from the most common sense perspective that we're, we're automating the task, so we're taking the person out of the task, but we're not replacing the person in the task. Is that what yeah. you've seen as well, or how has Rio dealt with that? Because there's there's a lot of people that would love to politicise this problem and say that we're replacing people. What have you seen in your experience? Yeah, it's it's kind of twofold. So uh, absolutely not re replacing people. Like most of the people are then change into other roles, and that's the very first thing that we uh, offer people in, in that situation. It's to be trained up in something completely different that is quite often complementary. So most of our truck and train operators then moved to Perth and started working on the autonomous control side of operating those machines. So they're still experts in rail, they're still experts in trucks, and, and then they get to do, they operate 20 of them instead of just one um, across you know, multiple sites. But the, the key thing to know about automation that I think is really important is people put far too much stock in the quality of the automation itself. They think it can do more than it really can. Um, and, and on a realistic basis, what we automate is the dumb stuff, the really repetitive, uh, you know, a person doing the same thing over and over that doesn't take much skill, that doesn't take much effort, doesn't take much education. 
So we tend to automate those and then we train people up into higher order roles. Um, so they're doing something more meaningful, more interesting, uh, more creative. And when it comes to the difference between sort of computer automation and the human component, they're never going to be separated. But what we do is we um, plug people and machines into the things that they're best at. And machines are really good at doing the same thing over and over really accurately. And people are really good at doing creative strategy and, and, uh, and, and sort of the higher level thinking um, where you need to make variant decisions. And, and so it's really just plugging uh, the right people, the right machines into the right areas that already lean to their natural strengths. Yeah, and we talk a lot about, um, you know, the, the future of automation or autonomous systems or unmanned systems around, you know, dull, dirty and dangerous tasks. Like, why the hell would we put someone in a position that, that they don't need to be? Why the hell would we have somebody doing backbreaking work or doing something that they don't need to be doing? Um, mm. Is that where a lot of the automations come from, Rio? Or I shouldn't say only automation, but, but autonomous systems? Yeah, and it's making a really deep impact on us as well. So over the last two years, it's the first time in our 147-year history that we've been fatality-free, and that's really And it's not happened in the mining industry ever. This is, you know, we, we almost don't even want to talk about it because it's, it's a unicorn for us. This is mm. the holy grail. We've been trying to, to not hurt people and not kill people for decades and it's been a slow sort of journey, but the automation piece is a big part of that. We're taking people out of really dangerous areas in which prior we didn't know a better way of how to do that task. Um, and, and now uh, you, you don't need to do that with people. You don't need to put people in harm's way in a lot of places. And, and it's saving lives. And, and we're now two years um, fatality free. Um, Touch wood. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, that's exactly right. You almost don't want to mention it to, to jinx it or something <laughs> like that. It, it's such a special thing. Um, you know, I've been in the mining industry my whole life. I've lost heaps of friends. Um, mm. I've, I've literally been 20, 30 metres away from someone that's fallen to their death uh, and, and died. Um, and so for me, uh, having, you know, fatality-free years and then stringing it together. And then the next journey that I want us to go on is, is injury-free. You know, we still do hurt people, people's hands. They can lose fingers. Uh, they, can, uh, they can get very severe lacerations with their legs. Uh, you know, normally because they're doing something that's against the rules. Mm. It is a people thing still. Um, but we, we try and engineer it out. We try and eliminate it uh, everywhere we can. And, uh, you know, today, fatality-free, tomorrow, injury-free, and then we've got 50,000 people coming to work and, and going home um, in, in the same shape that they arrived. And, and that's, that's really important. I didn't know that. I hadn't, hadn't seen that stat. And as you said, it's probably not something that's being talked about too openly because it's kind of when you say we're going to win this, game, this grand final because we're 20 points in front and then you end up losing in the last two minutes. Um, yeah. But I think that that's an amazing type thing. And um, you'll be seeing not only point-in-time fatalities or injuries, but surely automation and, and RAS is also looking at um, long-term, you know, effects of people too, people, you know, in their, in their later years that are picking up, you know, diseases or injuries. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, my, my dad was with the mining industry for Rio Tinto for, for 20 years. My granddad was with the industry for 20 years. And, and it has absolutely had an impact on their body. Uh, it had an impact on their hearing. It, it, it affects them to this day. And so, you know, getting people out the other end of their career into retirement in, in such a state that they can enjoy it in all the ways that they want to, 
um, is absolutely essential. Like it's, it's not something that we tolerate. And, and so, you know, there's a whole bunch of tasks that we use uh, all the time. We, we have people inspecting. Uh, we have, you know, hundreds of kilometres of, of um, conveyor belts on each site. That's just one site that can have 100 kilometres of conveyor belt. <laughs> And then there's a roller every 30 centimetres. Those need to be inspected and checked. And, and, you know, in the past, we would have someone walking around to do that. In the future, and we're, we're doing this now, we're using drones and thermal cameras and, and people are, are less exposed uh, to both the elements and, and also the, the harsh environments in which you have to traverse um, and, and then the hot and, and spinning machines that, that we're operating. So um, it's a fantastic outcome. Mm. Now, something I just want to touch on, and it's kind of a bit of a negative side, I guess, but it's around automation and mistakes and accidents, et cetera. Now, automation and, and robotic systems and um, unmanned vehicles and everything else, mistakes still happen and accidents still happen, don't they? Um, yeah. But in, in some of those cases, an accident may happen, but there's no person involved, therefore there's no there's no negative outcome to the person. So do, do you have you seen sort of accidents still happen with some of these, these types of technologies? And, and how do you sort of deal with that, I guess, from an accident-free or or tight workplace. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's one of those things where you don't know what you don't know. Uh, and one of the stories that I like to share is in the early days of the autonomous trucks. So I don't know whether your audience would realise, we, we run one of the world's largest autonomous programs anywhere. And, and we have hundreds of trucks in our business running driverless 24-7 all day, every day. Uh, but when we first designed them, we designed them with incredibly accurate GPS systems because we didn't we were worried about them going off the road or being somewhere that they shouldn't be. But they were so accurate um, that they were creating train tracks in the dirt roads because they, they were over the same place at the same time all day, every day, and every truck. And, and, it, was, and <laughs> it created incidents for us by being too accurate, <laughs> uh, which is a really interesting concept, right? Because a human driver, you're kind of a little bit more all over the road. And, and it spreads out uh, the impact that you have. And so there's more even wear. But when you're that accurate, you, yeah, we were carving very deep grooves into the roads with our first early days of autonomous uh, uh, trucks. And, and so these are learnings that, that we, we've had um, that we then needed to build in variants uh, into those autonomous trucks. So they used a bit more of the road and, and randomised it a little bit so that we didn't... Um, uh, we, we didn't damage the road, which then uh, impacted LVs. So we still drive LVs in these same areas. And, and then these, these giant grooves, uh, you know, up to, to feet deep. Um, and, and that was dangerous for, for them that just trying to do their normal everyday jobs. So, um, yeah, a lot of examples of where automation has needed to be tweaked or it's gone wrong. Um, but holistically uh, across the, the entire gamut of technologies, from a like-to-like basis, just one one autonomous truck versus one human truck, uh, the autonomous truck from day one had significantly less incidents um, as, a, as a result of the automation. And most of the challenges that we've had have been around accuracy in the systems and software, and then you can tweak it very quickly and change that and fix it and so it doesn't happen again. Um, so, so that's sort of my observation so far. And, you know, we, we all love watching um, Facebook videos of massive mining trucks falling over, you know, and, and doing the wrong thing. And typically, from what we read, it's, it's usually human error. So I guess taking that human out of the loop, but I would assume there's some, some sort of human still in the loop, isn't there? Some, some sort of control centre that's managing this? 
Yeah, that's right. So we've got a big operation control center in Perth and here in Brisbane, and we're expanding them all the time. And so we have pods of people that manage the operations for sites and ports and, and all the autonomous uh, machines that are within that area. And, and so uh, an individual uh, uh, can be responsible for monitoring up to 10 trucks. And it is just a monitoring piece. So you don't necessarily have to intervene unless something goes wrong. And it tends to prompt you uh, when something goes wrong. And then you make choices about what to do about it. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, it sort of decouples the uh, the person on the ground piece where they can get impacted personally by by the machine and, and makes it so they're responding to incidents from the safe air conditioning of, of uh, an office in, in the Perth Airport District. Which, you know, again, is, is leading back to that. You don't have a person sitting in a truck all day, every day. We've got a person who, um, and, and it works well for our workforce. Our workforce is going to be based around major cities, and it means that someone, as you said, is sitting in Perth or sitting in Brisbane and not necessarily sitting in the Pilbara or sitting in, you know, in the middle of um, Queensland. So it's, there's got to be some efficiencies there and um, works works better for some people. And we even run drones from our offices, our central control centres now. Uh, this is something that probably isn't uh, you know, very well known or understood, but if we have a, uh, a heat sensor on one of these large trucks, which could be a brake or it could be a tyre fire, it could be a lot of things, we can deploy drones now uh, either manually uh, from someone flying it from a safe area uh, with thermal cameras or optical cameras, or we can do it autonomously uh, from a drone in a box concept uh, that we have through Percepto. And we can ask that aircraft to go and have a look for us from the control centre in in here in Brisbane. So uh, we're, we're getting a lot more options on even how to solve uh, problems, uh, identify them, inspect them, and then understand them. Because uh, you know the difference for, from a from a mining perspective and a safety perspective of a tire fire versus a brake fire is like night and day. If it's a tire fire, you need to leave that truck stationary and isolate it and then not let anything go down that road for 24 hours. Uh, wow. Those tires are explosive. If they catch on fire and explode, um, they, they can kill people in, in the surrounds. And so we need to know about it and we use drones to actually tell us whether it's a brake fire, which is something that you can actually bring in uh, a fire truck and, and cool down and solve and then you can get on with your, your day. But if it's a tie fire, we don't want anywhere near that for, for 24 hours um, in case it explodes. And then we're using thermal cameras to, to figure out whether it's uh, uh, in danger of exploding or not. Um, and so we're using drones and, and remote sensing technology uh, every day to try and make those decisions. Now, I'm sure, and you mentioned before, you know, with the photography and videography and everything else and then using unmanned systems, um, surely you're a bit of a closet nerd like, like I am with some of this stuff and really enjoy it. Can, yep. can you tell us the coolest unmanned systems or autonomous system project that, that Rio's got? What's the thing that you, you, you know, might be the biggest, might be the newest, what's the coolest thing they're doing? Uh, we've got quite a lot um, that, that <laughs> I personally find super cool. Um, yeah. But one of them that I'm, I'm working on now, uh, and it's, it's not set in stone, but it could be a big game changer for us, is to the use of pseudo-satellites, which, which can be drones, but they can also be balloons that are, are, are autonomously monitored and tasked. And so you can effectively have these aircraft over the top of uh, the Pilbara or an individual site for, for hours, days, weeks and months uh, continuously at a time. And so for us, that means, uh, you know, we can provide permanent optical 
solutions over a site and it can cover the entire site from a single platform or even multiple sites. Um, but also that can uh, uh, be used uh, with thermal cameras. So the primary ca use case that I have for it is um, bushfire uh, monitoring and defence. Um, so a couple of years ago, I was on my way to train um, six new uh, drone pilots at a place called Marambu. And when I got there, there was bushfires all along the road and, and I arrived, the mine site itself was under threat from a bushfire. And they were looking to evacuate the whole site and, and the camp. And they were, they were at the process of making those decisions. And um, the, the traditional way that we'd do that is through satellites. And, and we'd use satellite imagery and try and figure out where the fire is, what it's doing and where it's going. Um, but it doesn't give you uh, as good an accuracy as a drone does. And so I was able to, and I got there very early in the morning, so I was able to put up a thermal camera first thing in the morning uh, and then a 30 times optical zoom camera uh, shortly thereafter. And we went from, you know, within hours of evacuating the site because we were really quite worried to realising this is this is a low-level grass fire, but it's going through green grass. So there was an enormous amount of smoke, um, but it was relatively low risk. And so for five, five days, I think, after that, we monitored the fire with drones. Um, we had FISA out there, so I was working hand-in-hand -hand with FISA and their helicopters. And um, we even used uh, multiple drones to fight the fire. So we'd set up a fire line along a, a road or, or something along those, those lines. And then instead of having 50 units along this road to defend it, we were able to defend it with five because we were tasking the units up and down the road to tackle the fingers of the fire as they approached the road. So we were able to put the right units in the right place at the right time um, because we had uh, drones in place that we were able to plug in um, the, the fire professionals directly with the information that they needed to make decisions. Um, so, yeah, it was a game-changing outcome for us. Um, which then made it so we used uh, drones as, as standard as part of all our firefighting operations. And then pseudo-satellites are sort of the next iteration of that where you can cover larger areas of ground uh, in, in very high quality. Uh, it can stay up there throughout the entire fire season. And then if there is no fire risk here but it is somewhere else, you can, you can move that asset really quite quickly. It can be 300 kilometres away in an hour. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of great opportunities there for, for our business to, to sort of um, react to, to incidents of, of nature and beyond our control or even a train crash or something like that really in a remote area. And we can get eyes on and we can get direct communications with those assets. And so pseudo-satellites, um, sort of you're thinking around that or they're thinking around sort of about 60,000 feet and above, 60,000 to 120,000 sort of feet. Is that where they, they, they would operate? Yep, yep, that's exactly right. And it fills in a gap for us from an information perspective. So if you even look at uh, exploration, finding a brand new mining opportunity, it starts at the satellite and then the next run is normally an aircraft at about a 1,000 feet with remote sensing technology on it with, with the final ones being a human on the ground, licking rocks and, and then doing some drilling. <laughs> and, and so it fills in about a 200,000 foot remote sensing gap for us in which we've got opportunities to, to either improve the information we have and make better decisions or find out that it's not an opportunity at all and not waste any time and resources. So it's, it's a good piece for us uh, to improve efficiency and outcomes.
Yeah, and, and you know, I think you just said it then. It's around that information gap. It's around that situational awareness. And um, but there's still a there's still a really important piece around the receipt of um, the receipt of data still needs to be analysed. You know, data on its own is nothing. It's like information. Yeah. Information means nothing until you actually analyse it to, to become intelligence. Um, yeah. So I guess for, for you guys, in some respects, the the engineer, the, the, the super geek that, that works out whether there's actually a mining site here or not doesn't particularly care where that comes from, do they? They just need the information that comes in. That's right, yeah. They, they, it doesn't matter what platform it is. Uh, it's the information itself, that it's accurate, that it's timely um, and, and that it's uh, uh, usable. Uh, you know, a lot of the old camera systems that we still have on our mine sites today, they, they're like 620p. Um, you know, the drones for us, and and pseudo satellites and others instantly you can you can uh, change those uh, uh, sensor packages and and you can um, you know glean better outcomes immediately without huge capital out, outlay. You know if we if we're going to change all those cameras, the fixed cameras on our sites, it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. You need EWPs. They're plugged in directly to specific software. Um, you know, so some of the satellite and, and drone and pseudo satellite uh, applications for us are a decoupled service that offers higher resolution, higher value, and it's on demand. And, and you know, mostly for, for the most part, if the fixed cameras aren't exactly in the right place at the right time, you don't capture the information. And, and that's the case, you know, very, very often where, where they're just not at the right angle to give us the information we need. And and so what what I think you're talking about there as well is we talk a lot about being um, problem centric, so as opposed to solution centric. And I I've been pretty vocal that I think part of our industry has had a failing in that a lot of a lot of great people have built a lot of great stuff and then have tried to sell stuff um, and tried to force stuff onto a problem as opposed to defining the problem and finding the right solution. So it seems you guys are really in that boat. You're in the boat of defining what your problem is or. Or having people come to you to say, I want X. It's like, well, do you really want X? Or, or what effect are you looking to generate? Let us decide what, what the actual solution is. What effect are you looking for? Yeah, and, and it's, it's actually a massive uh, problem that we have with the, the drone industry. A lot of people sort of cold call us and go, we've got all this great technology. Um, you should hire us. And, and go, well, why? What, what is it exactly you want to solve for us? And they don't tend to know our business and they don't tend to know what our problems are. And, and so quite often they're investing in, um, you know, assets uh, that, that I've got to tell them, look, I'm sorry, like we either already have that asset internally or that asset doesn't meet the needs of the problem that we're trying to solve. Um, and and it's, it's a bit of a, a challenge for the drone industry because for the most part it is a mum and dad industry still. Mm. You know, vast majority of drone businesses are, are, are mum, and, mum and dad sort of industries. Uh, and so that that hurts. That's a hard conversation to have when they've spent you know hundred thousand dollars on assets to try and build their business, um, but those assets don't align with with the needs of of, of us. And so you just got to sort of gently uh, let them down as best you can. Yeah, and, and we see a bit of that, you know us being a more of a consult or a consulting organisation as opposed to a physical service provider. We have a lot of people with systems come to us and say, we want to sell this into defence. We want to sell this into mining or ag or, or you know, rail or whatever it is. And my first question to them always is, so what's the problem you're trying to solve? Like, what, what is the, what's the issue that's keeping that client up at night that they can't solve with what they've got at the moment and how is yours going to solve it better? It's, it's reframing that, that discussion entirely. Yeah, and it takes a, a different mindset. And, and uh, there's there's a really good book, and I'll, I'll try and remember what it is. But one of the analogies they use in that book is 
Um, you know, McDonald's isn't trying to sell uh, more milkshakes. They're trying to give you something to do with your hands. Yeah, okay. So, you know, and, and they, they did the research. They, they figured out that the majority of people that are buying their thick shakes, it's right before going on some sort of a road trip. They've got a long commute into work. They're pulling in. They're going mostly through drive-through. It's mostly in the morning. And so the task to be done isn't to sell more milkshakes. The task to be done is to give someone something to do with their hands on a long drive. And those are two very different concepts to get your head around. And, and that's something that the, uh, the, the drone industry needs to start considering um, because the task for us uh, as, a, as a mining industry, we, we don't necessarily want to own drones. We don't even necessarily want to own the LV fleet or even the big trucks that move the dirt. If someone comes up with a, a, a business model that solves the real problem for us is consistently getting the dirt from the pit to, to the mine and then the mine to the port and then the port to the customer, you know, that, that's the actual problem that we're trying to solve and keeping that up and running are the actual problems. So, you know, we're, 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 the, we're the guy on the long commute looking for something to do with his hands on that commute. Um, we're, we're, not the, we're not the extra milkshake. Yeah, and I think, and, and I really appreciate that insight, to be honest, um, and I think the industry will appreciate that too because, as you said, we are a... Um, a, a mum and dad or two, you know, industry that's, that's evolving and building. And um, I do a lot of work with the Australian Association for Unmanned Systems and on the board and, you know, all all I'm trying to do, my, my primary effort in all that is educating educating clients and educating customers and educating the industry because we need to professionalise. Um, otherwise, you know, we're just going to fall apart and we're going to fall away and people from overseas are going to keep, you know, selling good stuff in Australia. And, and if I could share sort of a, an opinion, because yeah, I've been waiting for this to happen in Australia, is from a business perspective, we're looking for the aggregation of those mum and dad businesses into something that's big enough to service our whole business. Yep. Because we do sort of, you know, you can approach our individual sites and say, hey, you know, I've got this capability. Do you have any jobs for us? but it's actually a really terrible way to, to approach it. Uh, and you will only get sort of one or two jobs here and there on an ad hoc basis. Um, however, if you look at it a bit more like Monodelphus, Monodelphus is a company that does almost all our maintenance for us across the entire Pilbara. We don't want to do that maintenance. We don't, we're not professionals in maintenance. We're professionals in getting dirt to China. Um, yep. And so if you're a professional in providing uh, drone services and you can do it across our entire business, that's something we can talk to. That's, mm. that's an opportunity that we're like, yep, we have across our whole business millions of dollars worth of jo drone jobs that need to be done. Um, but on a site-by-site -site basis, it's not, it's not big enough and, and it's, it's going to sound arrogant, but it's just the reality of a $100 billion organisation. Um, if you're talking about a couple of thousand dollars here and there a week, that is a supervisor level decision on a site. If you're talking about a hundred billion dollar opportunity to, to help us with across all our sites, that's that's like an MD level decision and an MD can make that decision. And so then, you know, what, if you want a big outcome, you need to be able to have the big capability. You need to talk to the person that has the, the portfolio for the millions of dollars required um, which is, which is tricky, uh, I know. But uh, there, there are a handful of companies in Australia which we're very lucky to, to partner with that have that larger capability that can service our business uh, um, 
for the most part, all over the country. Yeah, and, and you're exactly right. And there's a, I, I talk a lot about trust and collaboration in our, um, in our industry as well. And people need to start trusting people and people need to start appreciating where their business starts and stops and then what they're not good at or what they're not focusing on, finding a partner to do that. And then, and then building these you know, consortiums or building these teams and partners that can actually present to people to say, hey, here's, a, here's actually a 100% Australian-owned you know, um, opportunity where we can do A, B and C for you. Um, we, you know, typically as Mirrigan, we, when, when we, when we provide proposals to clients, we will have partners on that. We won't have subcontractors that we just pretend that we're good at doing, you know, we don't do training, but if we, if we know a client needs training, we'll partner with one of our training partners and say, you know, we can provide you training through A, B and C, yeah. um, which I think is, is where you're going with some of that. Yeah. Cause, cause we don't necessarily care about the brand, like even Toyota, you know, Toyota does the vast majority of our cars, but we don't care that the cars have got Toyota written on them. What we care about is those cars work and they're reliable and that we can get them when we need them. Um, and, and so when it comes from, uh, uh one, of, one of the things that I get all the time is people will say uh, they will aggregate a little bit, but they still stay separate. And they're like, uh, we know these this group and they partner with us and they they handle this and so then I need to connect you to them and and then yeah. from me as a leader I need to talk to ten different people to do one job because um, from my perspective it's one it's one job I need this done and it needs to be done in X Y and Z and it tends to get broken up within the within these organisations like this one's an expert in training this one's an expert in actual operations and remote sensing and this one's the expert in photogrammetry. Um, we don't care. We just need the job done. And so if you guys organise that yourselves, have a united front from, from a logo, um, wicked. And, and then, you know, we'll sort of, we'll partner with you and we, we just sort of need the job done. With the you, you just want the effect. Yeah. You just want the effect. You couldn't care less what happens in the background and you want one person to invoice and you want one person to receive, to send yeah. purchase orders to and, and it's done and dusted. Yeah, because so many of our leaders as well, um, they're so busy with, with what they have on their plate. They don't just work their hours. They're also answering emails up until 10 o'clock at night. And so none of us have time for unnecessary complexity. Mm. And so we want a single point of contact that's really competent, that we trust. Uh, that that uh, And it's okay if you can't do everything, no problem at all. You might have some people you might want to suggest uh, or, or we'll, we'll, we'll look for that ourselves. But, um, yeah, it's uh, sometimes the conversations are really quite frustrating and I, I, I try and uh, answer everyone that reaches out to me. Um, but, yeah, they're, they're sometimes pretty funny conversations and, and, and not very helpful. <laughs> there's, some, um, there's some wild people in this industry. There's some real wild people. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I feel like I've met several. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um. I was doing a bit of LinkedIn um, stalking, you know, and obviously connected with you prior to this chat. I see you're a technologist, you know, you look at innovation, you're obviously looking into the future. Um, where are we going with all this? You know, where, what's the future of, of this in the future? You know, and I, I probably understand this could be an hour discussion, but where are we going? What's going on? Yeah, uh, fantastic question. And I love talking about this one in particular. <laughs> but my role is all Horizon 3 and setting up our business for, for Horizon 3. Um, and, and so I'll, I'll share with you a bit of a narrative, which could be a 1,000 years away, could be a 100 years away. But ultimately, um, perfect mining, for instance, and this does play into drones and remote operations, and I'll, I'll touch on that bit. But perfect mining is about 
finding a really specific element and then moving it to a place in which you can utilize it very easily. You know, fundamentally, that is mining. And, and right now we do it in a really dumb way and we mine a whole bunch of waste and whatnot. Um, well, 90% of what we move is waste. And so the ultimate objective of mining is to get that waste component down to zero. So for hundreds of years, we've just been getting bigger and mining more to get more resources, but it's still all waste, the vast majority. And so the next step for mining in general, and I've written some white papers and whatnot about this, is to get hyper-specific. And this is where drones and remote sensing and remote operations are basically a logical milestone. So if you go out a thousand years and you've achieved perfect mining, it, it might look something like termites going into the ground, collecting those resources, bringing them up to the surface where they're really easy to do something with. Might, might be like that. And then if you take it backwards to the logical conclusions of technology roadmaps in how to get there, drones and automation and remote sensing, everything that we're doing in our industry and the drone industry right now are absolutely essential to that future and the progression of it in that future. And it can only really go one way. It's not going to get larger, uh, in my view. You know, we're, we're already hitting uh, you know, 400 tonnes per truck. But the only reason why we're hitting 400 tonnes per truck is because 90% of it is waste. Which just means that, sure, you're mining more, but you've just got more of a problem because you've still exactly. got all this waste that you've got to sort through. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And, and so the waste is a massive problem for us from an energy component, from a, a, a compliance, from an environmental component. And now all the, the world's sort of uh, pressure points are aligning in such a way that we don't tolerate those as a society anymore. We don't tolerate big holes in the ground, stupid amounts of water being wasted and used, uh, air pollution, all that sort of stuff. And it's pointing the whole industry from a very wide, broad perspective into a narrow perspective. And, and, and it's, you know, in my view, once people, the general sort of industry understand the value of getting hyper-specific, uh, there, there will be no turning back because for us, if we can go from 90% waste to, to 80% waste, that's tens of billions of dollars extra that we make per year. Um, you know, it's a significant amount. If we can get it, you know, it, it would probably double the value of our company if we were the ones to invent it and then export it to the rest of the world. And, and drones and, and remote sensing and all that are critical to that path. And there's a there's a whole corporate responsibility piece to this too, isn't it? it? It's about you know if we're going to continue to mine in the future, then then let's mine where we're we're not disrupting you know nature as much. You know we're only disrupting nature as much as we need to. We're not we're not ripping huge amounts out of the ground um, yep. just for the sake of it. Um, and, and I guess the other part I was thinking is so are you are you thinking towards a mining future um, where we put no people underground anymore? It's all you know it's all machines, or, or is that too much of a stretch? No, I don't think it's too much of a stretch. I think the time is what varies. I think it's inevitable, but whether it's 100 years from now or 1,000 years from now, I, I don't know. Um, but, but there's also other interesting components as well. If you're, uh, let's say you're collecting with drones uh, in the pit, you don't necessarily need trucks anymore. You could potentially mine in the future with drones and then take straight from that drone, and it could be millions of drones or something. I, I don't know whether it be very, very large drones or very, very small drones, but then, then do you need a port? Do you need the ship to even stop? Like you, you go straight from the pit, you don't need all that rail infrastructure, 
and then you deliver it directly to the ship that's still motoring down the coastline, and then when it's full, it just turns around and goes back. I mean, that to me is efficiency. That mm. that um, you know, the 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 train component, like it needs a lot to happen. In in you know, that's that's still a long way away. Um, you know, you need high quality, large amounts of power. Um, you need miniaturization in in a lot of the things that's happening in the drone world. You, know, you need uh, very good remote sensing. You need the laws that you know. As you guys know better than anyone, the drone industry is significantly more advanced than the laws that govern them. Mm. You know, CASA is nearly five years behind, and within a couple of years, with the development that we're seeing in the drone industry, they'll be 10 years behind. And they don't really know, I think, how to manage it. I mean, even, even if you guys have ever had to put in an incident report because one of your drones has crashed, right? The, the thing that us professional pilots, we're all meant to do, and I know a lot of people don't, start doing it because it actually helps everything else. But if you put in that incident report, you'll notice, uh, well, at least six months ago when I did the last one, um, there isn't an option there for zero people on board because it's still a system that's designed for human flight. And, they, and even though drones have been around for 10 years, they haven't even changed the website in which you put in the incident report so that you can make it zero and tell them it's a drone. So every time I put in an incident report, I feel like I get on the phone and I let them know and I put it in the notes of the incident report as well. I put it in the notes that this is a drone. No one was hurt. Everything is fine because you've got to put one person was on board because there isn't an option for zero. Um, but hopefully that has changed since, uh, since I looked last. It might have even been more than a year ago since I had to put in, a, in an incident report. But uh, that's, that's an indication to me of how far behind they are um, in, in that even something, a simple thing like a website change from a, for, by having a zero option uh, and even maybe a drone tick box, you know, that's something a web designer could do in, in half an hour. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and that was it. Was something that I just noted down there that I wanted to ask you about. It's it's um, how you've been dealing with CASA, and, and you probably gave us a little bit of an insight in, in that respect. Or are you are you not dealing with CASA as much because you're using landholder exemption, or, or how have you found CASA? You know, when you when you've needed to deal with them. So CASA has been amazing. I I myself have moved into a different role. So I had a lot to do with the drone program up to about two years ago, and then two years ago I started doing more of the future focused technologies. Yep. Um, and so prior to that, uh, a lot of fantastic content. They, they absolutely listen um, and, and they understand. But what I feel from a government perspective, from, from the people that sort of pay CASA to do its role, um, those people don't understand and don't allocate the resources required to make the changes. So in, in all the aspects of working with CASA that I've had, they've been absolutely brilliant. Um, they've they've completely understood where I'm coming from. They've tried their best to help, but I feel like they they were limited in what they could do because of you know politics or perhaps uh, structure that that uh, you know their primary focus is manned aviation as it as it should be. And I think the politicians are, are taking a while to understand that you know not only are drones here to stay, but drones will eventually uh, you know and logically take over the vast majority of what manned aviation does now, whether that's remote sensing out in the middle of nowhere, like we hire planes to, to find our resources, um, or, or whether it's even, you know, much later manned aviation, but it's, it's basically inevitable.
Yeah, and I think um, you know you do need to. We, we do need to tip our hat a little bit of cash. So this is um, a significant shift for them over the past you know five years, and, and I think some of the guys there have done a done a great job. Um, but there's always more to do, and everyone's always you know limited by resources. Mm-hmm. I had a specific thing that just popped into my mind um, that I wanted to ask you about. Noting that we're we're hitting nearly on forty minutes, but uh, I've got about fifty thousand questions to go. But um, there might need to be a part two. Um, culture. So how does a guy go from driving a crane to getting into aviation? And, and I'll give a little bit of a story if I can. You know, I was in the Army. I was in Royal, the Royal Australian Artillery. We used to, you know, make things go bang and, and you know, blow stuff up. Yeah. We then, you know, Army then decided we're now going to bring drones into Army and they're going to come into artillery. And there was a significant shift in, in culture, in thinking, in reporting, in understanding that we don't have to hide problems and hide incidences. We actually have to report those because that's a real positive thing. Um, and trying to tell a bunch of artillerymen that, uh, and ladies later on, less then but more so now, that, hey, you know, we need to change. Surely a crane operator and, and, a, and potentially maybe not a crane operator, but maybe other people in mining have, have a different culture in the way they do things. How did you foster an aviation culture in an organisation that, that pulls stuff out of the ground? Yeah, it, it's, it's really hard and it's an ongoing challenge. Uh, and I've got an example that I'll, I'll share with you there. Uh, in, in a moment, but um, I guess the, the angle that I'm coming from and I'm really lucky to have is is I have my pilot's licence, so I, I, you know, have done... You get it. Yep. I get it, yeah, that's right. I've, I've, I've done the manned aviation thing. I understand where CAS is coming from. I understand the licensing and the importance of it and how the air uh, airspace and air services sort of want to manage their air services. Uh, and so that was a significant advantage for me in building a drone program in, in Rio Tinto because, um, and that was primarily the, uh, the the expertise component that I added to the narrative because it, it wasn't just me. There was a team of us, and there was automation experts, and there was project management experts. And we, we you know, when we started this, we had twenty odd people in the steering committee. We're down to about three. Um, <laughs> story for another time, but. Um, yeah, the, the, the fixed wing, real world fixed wing aviation expertise helped a lot because I was able to articulate how important it was to get it right and get it right straight away. Um, but unfortunately, uh, we're a really big organisation and without you know, me or someone like me standing there looking someone in the eye, continuing to hammer this through, it, it drifts away and it, and it, and it papers off. And, and we've had some examples of that because we had... Um, you know, someone who I consider probably Australia's best chief pilot was was our chief pilot. So um, I was going to go into from from the acting of it into the full chief pilot role. Um, but then I got this opportunity to be a part of an international team that was the CEO's pre- project and couldn't say no. Um, <laughs> and so we got in a, a contractor to basically sit in the chair until I came out. Um, and the, the poor guy had a horrendous time dealing with my company because my company just didn't get it. And one of the examples was is, is we had an incident, and as you know in aviation, you need to immediately inform everyone in a similar aviation space around your whole business of that incident so that we can all learn from it in the shortest amount of time. Um, but because he was a contractor, it, he had to put it through uh, a, a GM in our business and it would sit on her desk for weeks until she got around to doing it because she didn't prioritise it. And she yep. didn't know and understand and, and, you know, we need to do better at communicating this to our people in our business is that it's not just a, a federal compliance thing for us as a business to make sure that we get 100% right every time. 
but it also impacts the reputation and the career prospects of the chief pilot that we hired to do the role. Because if that goes wrong, it's his license that he loses. It's on, it's on his shoulders. And he was basically powerless to do anything about it because of the structure that we had internally. So we, we needed to fix that. And I was really, I was really sad to hear that, w- that we did that. And, and he moved on, and quite rightfully so, I would have as well. Um, and it's a real shame because he was a fantastic chief pilot. He, he was absolutely the right person uh, to do the role. Uh, I believe, you know, he would have been a, a better chief pilot than me and we should have given him that full time. But some elements of our business don't understand still to this day, um, despite it being worth hundreds of millions of dollars a year to our business. So that, that's an ongoing challenge for us. Yeah, fantastic. And I think that whole cultural piece, um, there's still some cowboys in the industry and guys that want to, you know, jump out and do whatever they want. And, and that's, that's going to change and needs to change, you know, if we, if we really want to make a, make a go of this, um, this industry. Yeah, um, and we're pretty lucky because if we had a cowboy uh, sitting in that role, the, the consequences could have been really bad. We, we were lucky to have someone so good and, and, and with so much integrity because it forced change. He didn't just put up with it like plenty of people might have. Uh, he forced the change and brought it to people's attention um, on his way out the door and, and prior as well. And, and without that, we probably wouldn't have been able to fix it. We wouldn't even know about it. We, so it, it's really important. And I, I think Rio's probably got a bit of a leadership role to play in this too, where, you know, Rio's large enough that if, um, if it all goes pear-shaped significantly, the government could turn around and say, right, yeah, let's just stop. Because, you know, if a company like Rio can't do it, nobody else can do it. Um, so I think there's, there's a real there's a leadership role for, for your company to kind of play in that too. Yep, absolutely. I completely agree. Uh, we need to, to help CASA to sort of understand uh, the industry from that perspective and, and allow us to, to set up the infrastructure around what we want to do so it's safe and interacts with their world, the manned aviation world, really successfully. And we've got a responsibility to all the drone users and small companies and things like that to make sure that we don't mess it up for everyone else as well because yeah if we get it wrong it's going to be wrong in a big way because our drones are in and around manned aviation all day every day i mean one of our sites that i operated uh, drones on is literally underneath the approach and departure of an international airport Um, it has to be right 100 percent of the time and we've implemented a whole bunch of stuff to to ensure it's right um, such as uh, mandatory air data uh, connectivity to all our drones is, is one of the things. So if a single pilot anywhere in Australia does the wrong thing, it's reported and recorded. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's uh, something that will be addressed uh, immediately. It's flagged to us as chief pilots. And, and then the second component is monitoring what's going on around our business as well, because it's not just us flying drones in these areas. And we need to be able to distinguish between the activities of ourselves with the activities of someone that's potentially flying drones over our fence to look at the real stuff that we're doing. Um, Because we've got helicopters going back and forth from our sites all the time. We've got fixed wing aviation from from, uh, fly and fly out going back and forth all the time. And you only need one incident uh, and that'll ruin it for everyone. So we we do need to, to get on top of it as best we can. Um, Gavin, I've got one last question for you and um, and then we might look at, at wrapping up. Um, integration, who's integrating with who? Is the manned world integrating with UAS or are UAS integrating with the manned world? Uh, from my perspective, UAS is integrating with the manned world and um, it's part of the reason why it's happening so slowly is because it's all one way. From, from the manned world perspective, 
It's uh, if it's not broke, don't fix it. It's not our priority. We don't we don't care about it. Just stay out of our way. Um, but really, for it to be uh, effective, it needs to be a two-way conversation uh, and, and a really genuine one. And I think right now, all the pressure is coming from the uh, UAV world to play in that environment uh, and do it safely and get permission to, to do it in, like, um, you know, approved corridors of flight is something I've talked to Castor about, you know. I want to be able to operate drones up to 250 feet uh, above all of my sites and have a little box around it from an air services perspective. It's a really easy thing to do. And it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it's altitude separated. Uh, you know, they shouldn't be below five, well, they shouldn't be above, below a thousand feet unless they're doing air work, of course. Uh, and so, you know, we separate everything in aviation by altitude uh, and it's a really easy thing to do. We can do what we want to do. They can do what they want to do. No one interrupts with anyone and everyone's got permission. Um, there's a lot of work still to do in that area because um, we're, we're not having those genuine sort of cross-industry collaboration sort of conversations as well as I think we could. Yeah, well, I mean, um, you know, thank you for all your efforts in, in getting us to this space too. I, I know it'd be it'd be quite easy and I'm sure you've got enough on your plate that you could just sit back and do your job as opposed to really trying to think about the future of this um, moving forward. Hey, um, Gavin, I need to apologise because I didn't ask enough questions about Rio. I was I wanted to ask a hell of a lot more about what you guys are doing and case studies and bits and pieces, but perhaps we can have another um, another chat in the future. Um, I think your insights into the into the industry and your insights into the future and insights into pros and cons and how people can do better um, have been really valuable for this. And, and perhaps we can we can talk next time a little bit more about about Rio because I want to hear what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, more than happy to. Uh, we've got some good uh, use cases of jobs that used to take weeks that now take nine minutes so uh, i'd love to share more about that with you about the the opportunities there and and the technologies that we used and and then the value to us as a business and then to you uh, as drone pilots and businesses as well so yeah happy to have another chat um hey gavin if uh, people want to reach out to you best way to sort of say g'day just maybe connect on linkedin is that what, what you recommend Yep, LinkedIn is the best way, uh, absolutely. So, and people are more than welcome to, to reach out. I, I try and reply to everyone, but I, I do get 20 odd a day. So, um, uh, the other thing is, I do attend, um, you know, plenty of conferences uh, throughout the year, you know, COVID permitting. Um, you know, I was here at the, the World of Drones Congress and whatnot, and, and people are more than welcome to come up and, and say good day. Because, uh, yeah, I love chatting about this stuff and I, I really uh, enjoy other people's perspectives and, and how they're using drones and whatnot. And and, uh, and I try to be plugged into the industry as best I can. And how good was World of Drones just being able to get together face-to-face and actually meet people? I thought it was an awesome way to finish off a pretty ordinary year. Yeah, it was my first conference since COVID and so I was yeah. really excited to be there and I caught up with a whole bunch of people that I've got a little bit to do with in the industry around robotics and automation and, and drones. Uh, so I loved it, you know. I, I was at the, the office for the Emerson guys just the other day chatting to them. Um, you know, BI5 does robotic firefighting equipment, another local one here. Um, That's Sean, uh, Sean Tansley, another another great guy in the industry, yeah, doing, and again, Australian-made, which is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, we, we've got genuine expertise in this area that is of interest to big world players. So I, I presented to NASA, uh, the NASA 2IC, uh, probably about three, four months ago. And, and I do a lot in the space industry now as well around robotics and, and automation and, and remote sensing. And they are really interested in what we're doing here in Australia 
because the environment of Australia lends itself to expertise in certain areas, and, and those areas are robotics, uh, automation, and, and, and even uh, UAV drones and whatnot. So a lot of, uh, a lot of interest from uh, around the world in what we're doing here in Australia. It's really important. And, uh, and, and lots of fantastic opportunities to, to partner and collaborate on the, on the world stage coming up. Gavin, um, thanks very much, mate. Really appreciate you taking an hour out to, uh, to have a chat with us. I feel we could have gone for, we could have done a Joe Rogan podcast of three hours or something, to be honest, but uh, maybe next time we'll, we'll do another hour or so. Sounds good. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to join you and, and it's been fantastic. Thank you for having me on your show and, and look forward to tra- chatting to you again soon. Awesome. Thanks, Gavin. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you.